this is the new technology of speech in America. You can dial people all the way up to everybody sees it, and you can dial someone else down to it's almost impossible to see them. That is extremely dangerous, and it's especially dangerous if it's done in secret and nobody knows exactly how it operates. In this episode, I sit down with investigative journalist Matt Taibbi. He was one of the key investigators of the Twitter files which exposed collusion between social media companies, the nonprofit sector, and the federal government to censor Americans on a mass scale. In parallel to this censorship program, I think what they're doing with things like shadow banning and denial listing is they're trying to simplify controversies and reduce everybody's intellectual field of view. And in doing so, kind of drain our will to be curious, to stand up for ourselves, to think about things in a complicated way. We discuss the current state of journalism, government information operations, internet culture and addiction, and the importance of free speech and free inquiry. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleg. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest-rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Matt Taibbi, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to, to finally have you on the show. Um, it's been, I guess it's been a long time coming. There's just so many areas where our interests have kind of intersected, I think when you gave your speech here at Freedom Fest, you were talking about not just these, you know, incredible censorship apparatuses that have been pull, pulled up over the last years, you know, and, and people losing their ability to kind of communicate their ideas in the public square. But there's something more pernicious, and that's a loss of the idea or the need or the drive for freedom. That is true, and I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. Um, well, I came around to this uh, way of thinking because I had done, I obviously spent a lot of the winter working on these Twitter file stories, and although they were complicated in terms of their specifics, you know, how, who was talking to whom, how the procedures worked, all that, the basic idea that the government would like to censor, that the companies would rather censor than be regulated, that wasn't hard to understand. But, you know, as a journalist, when there's part of the story that doesn't compute for you, um, you know, there's always like this little inner voice um, that kind of sounds the alarm. It's a little bit like a doctor uh, who looks at a patient and Everybody else says that's tuberculosis, but part of you says, no, I don't think so. It's something else, right? And so for me, I, I spent a lot of this winter um, wondering, like, there was something about this story didn't, that didn't fit. And the thing that didn't fit was, why is everybody okay with this? Uh, there has been this unbelievable sea change in particularly American culture, I would say, but you know, globally too. But Americans especially, I think, have always really rebelled against censorship. Um, even the idea that they could, you know, be warned about, uh, you know, certain kinds of speech. They didn't like that if you go back to the, you know, the Parents Music Resource Center controversy in the 80s, which I remember. Um, 
So I think, you know, what's going on, and the more I, lo I look at it, in parallel to this censorship program, I think what they're doing um, with things like shadow banning and denial listing is they're trying to simplify controversies and reduce everybody's intellectual field of view. And in doing so, kind of drain our will, you know, to be curious, to stand up for ourselves, to think about things in a complicated way. And it's making us, you know, less interested in standing, in, in fighting for our rights. I think, I mean, I think that's part of internet culture now. Uh, they're kind of draining our, our um, you know, the fighting spirit out of us. You know, just something that occurs to me, you know, Marshall McLuhan famously said, you know, the medium is the message, right? And I'm wondering how much this, the particular whole new way of communicating that we're in, like it or not, is affecting that. Because you're, you're describing a kind of, an actually an assault on the, I think, the American spirit here, right? Like a very de deliberate one, but at the same time, there's something with this technology, that's possibly, right, that's also playing a role. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I've been covering um, internet censorship issues since 2018. I was one of the first pe people in quote-unquote mainstream media to worry about it in the states. Uh, one of the first things I was told is that um, social media is addictive in the same way that cigarettes are addictive. There are studies about it. The companies have done. Uh, studies talking about how people get dopamine hits even from feeling, for instance, the waffle pattern on the back of their phones. Um, they are addicted to the whole process of looking at their phones. And the problem with internet culture is that it's very anti-individualistic. Uh, if you talk to um, younger people, kids in school, they their whole sense of self-worth is wrapped up in how many likes they're getting, how many uh, impressions they're getting uh, on social media. They, they can't measure um, the, the worth of their own personalities um, with absent you know, sort of group approval, which is, I think, very contrary to the American spirit, right? We, we, we've always been people who, you know, we go off on our own and, and, you know, as I mentioned in the speech yesterday, like Chuck Berry, you know, with no particular place to go. Um, we never ha had to think about how we fit into the crowd as much as we do now. And I think the internet culture is so, wraps up everybody so much in group affirmation that um, it's been very harmful. So the thing that I've been obsessing over, over the last, as my viewers know, over the last six months, at least, if not longer, is this idea that as human beings, when we perceive that there's a consensus view on any issue, on some issue, that influences us, us incredibly. Whether or not it's actually true that that consensus view exists, there's also powerful mechanisms that can create the perception of consensus and you know you said you know they're you you said earlier they're doing something i want to find out who you think they are right but but some of them have these tools but some of this is also an emergent property as well exactly like you just described right mm -hmm. yeah on on the one hand it's classic herd behavior it's the same mechanism you know that causes as soon as 50% of a herd of deer decide to go one way, they all go, right? Um, sometimes people uh, behave in the same way. What I've always struggled with is in journalism, we're trained, um, or we used to be trained, to think in the opposite way. That when everybody goes one way, like, that is often a red flag that something's up. You know, maybe you should look in the other way. Uh, I think the business now, at least in the media business, um, it's frowned upon to cross consensus. Now, now, the stars of our business and mainstream media are all people who go along with uh, the consensus view of things. And it's very, very frowned upon to raise questions about things that have, quote unquote, been decided, you know. And um, I worry a lot about that. I think that's true in academia as well. Um, you know, I've seen this in newsrooms. Newsrooms used to be a place where people had all kinds of opinions. They, you know, people behaved like, you know, it was the dressing room of a uh, comedy club. Now everybody's nervous. They don't want to tell you what they really think about things. And that's just a terrible atmosphere for this kind of job. 
because you need to have that spirit of free inquiry in order to get to the truth, uh, even in this job, which is less important than some others, I think. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a very complicated thing. You know, it's not a new thing. Again, as, as we're talking here, I'm thinking back when I was, you know, deciding I was going to become an evolutionary biologist many, many moons ago. It was a long time, right? That so many people believed that evolution by natural selection is the answer, the answer to the whole, to human origins, to all the diversity out there, which by year three, I was patently obvious to me that that's just simply untrue if you... Look, you're looking at a base, even have a basic understanding of the literature. It was almost like a quasi-religious conviction. I even talked, I had great professors, Dolph Schluter. He actually demonstrated some of the, you know, some of the me possible mechanisms of evolution in these stickleback lakes he had created. It was an incre incredible, like, mind on this. And I would, I would talk to him. i said, is this strange to you? And he says, yes, this is actually very strange to me. For some reason, as human beings... We're, we're, we can settle around con consens what we think are consensus views around things, even when the reality is facing us, staring us in the face. How do we deal with this? I don't know, but uh, I, I primarily worry about this in, in my field because, because we're specifically charged with not doing that, right? I mean, all, all the people... 100%, I'll just say yes, exactly, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go back and look um, at the great investigative reporters in history, how many of them do you think are the kinds of people who would have been popular in high school and would have gone along with all the latest trends? Uh, not many, right? I mean, your average journalist, the investigative journalists, the good ones, are difficult, prickly people who go against the grain um, and they keep digging until they find what they think is, you know, the truth. You take somebody like Seymour Hirsch, um, that is exactly the kind of personality the current system is designed to weed out, is the person who doesn't accept on its face, you know, whatever the official explanation of things is. Um, okay, you told me that, but now I'm going to look into it myself. Like that, that's, that's the attitude of a real journalist. They don't want that person anymore. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I started to see people expressing that openly in the business. And I, ever since, I've been trying to understand why that is. What's the big change? And, you know, about five years ago, we at Epoch Times, we realized that we have to have our own journalism school basically we couldn't hire we could get some seasoned grizzled you know <laughs> right. older journalists that still know what they're doing but of the a lot of the young people were just simply not being taught that i call it the truth seeking model of journalism right because the, the truth is out there and you're just going to go out okay maybe you can't get at all of it that's fine but the question is are you looking is that what you actually want to do we found so many of the young people that were coming out of even j schools i won't mention specific names even though i've been I'm, they're on my mind I, yeah i think we know right? which ones yeah. you're talking about but but, mm -hmm. but they're, they're being taught something like i i call it in my mind narrative reinforcement journalism if that's even journalism because there's another name for that actually right access uh, journalism i mean there's there's some yeah. dirtier names for yes. it but yes well yeah. no so ex exactly and it's so and we're just looking at this thinking what what is going on here but and these are i mean these are some people very close to you colleagues of yours i mean i you know i i i'm a bit familiar with your career prior to you starting to report on russia gate for example right which is where i first noticed you is like hey this guy's <laughs> leaving the crowd somehow here right because we were we were we were reporting, of course, on RussiaGate, and we were anybody who would remotely have a different view than the apparent consensus view. We were like, "Wow, this is amazing! Who who is this guy?" Right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, be before I get to RussiaGate, one one thing I would say is uh, there was obviously a huge demographic change in the business. Um, you know, I grew up in journalism. My father was a reporter. A lot of the people in my family were reporters. Um, and in the 70s, 60s, 70s, you know, when my father started doing this job, um, it was more of a trade than a profession. Uh, it was 
very common for people who went into journalism to be the sons and daughters of electricians or plumbers or, you know, peop- graduates of typing schools. I mean, it was a place... It was a blue-collar profession, basically. Right. That is very different today. But, no, tell me, I, let's talk about this more. That's fascinating, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Walter Winchell had a uh, had a famous joke about this where he... Um, somebody asked him about uh, about being in journalism, and he says, yes, I'm a journalist, but don't tell my mother she still thinks I'm a piano player in a whorehouse, you know? Um, <laughs> which, at the time, was, you know, I, I think was probably true. It was It was not an honorable profession for somebody of a certain class, right? And then I think all the president's men came along in Watergate and it became this sexy, uh, appealing destination for upper class kids who were in liberal arts schools, like me, especially the mid 90s. Most of the people who were sort of high level political journalists in America, um, we're in the West, frankly. Um, we're, I would say, upper middle class or, or even more wealthy than that. So this created a problem, especially I, I noticed it on the campaign trail, because they were the same people socially as, as the people they were reporting on. The, the aides to the candidates, the donors, uh, in many cases the politicians themselves, they all kind of hung out in the same areas and, you know, on the plane or off, the, it was the same group of people. And that is not a good situation because you, what ends up happening is rather than there being this adversarial relationship, it ends up being something else entirely that's, um, you know, much more unseemly. Uh, and, you know, the great example I always uh, bring up is Primary Colors. Remember that uh, book that came out in the in the 90s right, uh, by right, right, Anonymous? Right, yeah. It was actually Joe Klein, right? The, but this was, uh, instead of all the president's men, this was somebody who got in the inside and told the story of a campaign from the point of view of the candidate, right? As opposed to looking at the candidate um, on behalf of the public. And so there's a switch in, in, in um, point of view. And, and it was a very important one. Once upon a time, the, in every newspaper, there used to be kind of a working class columnist, right? Like a Jimmy Breslin or in New York or Mike Barnacle in, um, in Boston, uh, you know, Mike Royko, right? Uh, those people started to be phased out and they were initially replaced by people who um, were more upper class, but had some cred with that same audience and those were people like me and thomas frank we were like the sort of first bridge columnists right we we rode in kind of a you know a, a, an accessible style for ordinary people but we really weren't you know we, we didn't come from a family full of construction workers right then they got rid of us and now there's nobody. There, there's nobody who talks to ordinary people in big newspapers anymore. And, you know, that's a shame. For some reason, as we're talking here, I'm reminded of uh, David Samuel's piece back in the day. I think it was in New York Magazine or New Yorker about, um, you know, how the narrative around um, the Iran deal was constructed, how the White House work to do that. And I remember thinking two things, right? Well, first I was like, how the hell did you get this story? This is unbelievable, right? Um, and then the second thing I know, I thought was thinking after was, wow, this guy's, get, look at how this guy's getting attacked. Was this about the use of FISA to, to spy on the, the members of Congress? No, so this was actually, um, this was the time when, in the Obama administration, when they were trying to uh, they were very interested in passing this Iran deal, the JCPOA, and um, I think it was Ben Rhodes who who kind of organized a campaign to get the journalists to back it and shift public opinion. And this is the story that he that that David got. I mean, it was just incredible. The really the really stark thing was the the attack on him. I think what you're describing is that phenomenon. It's like, hey, you just did something that isn't part of the crowd. It isn't part of how we do things or something like that, right? Even though it's exactly the kind of journalism that you would hope 
one would be able to do, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So, and I hate to be one of those back-in-the-day types, but um, it wasn't that long ago that journalists really didn't gang up on other journalists unless they screwed up, unless, unless they made a big factual mistake that got everybody in trouble. So that's why there was a, a lot of negative attention thrown at Judith Miller. Now, a lot of other people deserved it, and I think it was unfair that she was the only person who was vilified in, in that instance. Um, but, you know, th that, you, that was really the only exception once upon a time. And then, you know, somewhere around the late Obama years and then definitely once Trump got elected, there became this new phenomenon where uh, journalists were willing to become this sort of consensus enforcement mechanism, which I hadn't really seen, you know, um, as aggressively before. There was a little bit of it during the Iraq war, but there was always a minority of people who were allowed to... Um, give their views and you know they weren't hounded out of the business really um, but that became a thing um, it was very noticeable I think you know the incident you described was an early one and then it became very overt during Russiagate. Prior to let's say the Trump phenomenon okay we were a lot more similar I think to many media but it's, we just kind of diverged around that time and the reason we diverged I remember watching what the mainstream or I call it the legacy media were doing and you know I'd been in China human rights China's been my kind of my, more of my focus for a very long time and I was watching and it just what I saw it just suddenly struck me as being very characteristic what I'd seen the Chinese media, I don't really think of them as media exactly, but right, exactly. we're doing, right? And it was just, it was stunning. It was one of these moments where when I saw it, you know, you see it, and then you, they say, you see it, you can't unsee it. Conservatives will say, oh yes, you know, the media's always been left-leaning and they've always had narratives. And I was like, Something changed here. <laughs> there was a profound shift. And, and then we started feeling the weight of the system, and including media companies coming after us in, in really terrible, Terrible, terrible ways and yeah. false ways, right? Yeah, yeah, Abs absolutely. Um, no, I worked in um, the former Soviet Union in the '90s. I had a lot of friends who um, had been journalists under the Soviet system. I even hung out a lot at the Union of Jur of uh, Journalists um, Club, uh, which at one point was where all the party members used to eat. I went there because that was the only place to get good food um, for a while. But, you know, during the 80s and, and the 70s, it wasn't journalism what, what the Soviets were doing. It was, um, you know, it was low-rent advertisements for uh, different factions of the Communist Party. And it was totally unreadable, but it was useful as a kind of... Uh, consensus enforcement mechanism you know if, if there was somebody who was a little bit out of bounds they would see you know there would be language in, in a certain article and that would be the warning shot that would be fired against the you know across the bow and that's something very different from what we do traditionally and I, and I remember thinking to myself god what a miserable job you know <laughs> if you're going to get into politics just do that as opposed to this uh, it's, it's a terrible thing but when we started to see it here in the United States and and, and you know and in the West, um, yeah, I I just came and account for it because they're not, nobody's being forced here, which is the hard part to understand. Yeah, there's just it's, but 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 there are incentive structures. Yes. Just as a fun fact, I didn't even know who Thomas Sowell was until maybe seven years ago, and. You know, that was the big lesson I got from Thomas Sowell's look at things in terms of incentive structures, not goals, not, per, right, because sometimes those things are opposite, but it's actually the incentive structure that will determine what happens. <laughs> it's a powerful lesson. It changed my thinking considerably. But, no, exactly, but there's a lot of what I would call upside, it seems like there's a lot of upside down incentive structures. I want to touch on, uh, maybe we can talk about that, but I want to touch on Russiagate, because something, what is it, that made you 
realize that something was off. Said, people have said, you know, you're 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 just a pro Russia guy. That's why you went after this, right? Um, I, I, I'm just kind of curious about your motivation. How did the how did all this happen, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, that's funny because we, although I, I am very much a Russophile, I, I went to Russia because I was a a great lover of Russian literature. I wanted to learn to read, you know, Gogol and Tolstoy and some other people in Russian. Um, I love a lot of things about Russian culture. I was definitely not a fan of Vladimir Putin. I mean, some of the journalists who were murdered um, in the early 2000s were colleagues of mine. Uh, one of them was kind of a mentor of mine, as a matter of fact. We wrote very critically about uh, Putin, and my newspaper, The Exile, was eventually shut down uh, by the Russian government after I left. Um, so we were certainly not fans of Vladimir Putin, and that was never a thought in my head about this story, um, nor was, I, was any kind of affinity for Donald Trump part of my thinking about this. The real problem was that I was looking at the way they were reporting the story, and I was recognizing the same kinds of language that we saw in the WMD affair, where it was a lot of people talking about anonymous sources um, referring to things that could not be independently confirmed by other reporters. So it's like science. If you can't reproduce the experiment in the lab, you got to be a little bit nervous about it. And I thought, this is a really big story to be risking um, so much on. And at first, all I said you know, very gently on, in places like NBC, MSNBC was, we have to be careful of stories like this. We don't have a whole lot of proof to go on. And that was the last time I was ever on MSNBC, for a while anyway. And, uh, but there was this instant condemnation from people um, within the business that was totally new to me. I had never experienced that before. It's a complete turnaround, isn't it? I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's a complete turnaround of what this journalism was supposed to be, right? Like, Yes, even, even the famous legends about journalism have been turned inside out, right? Because if, if you think about all the president's men, remember, they were alone in that story for a long time. There's actually a scene about it in the movie where... Um, uh, the Ben Bradley character talks to Woodward and Bernstein and says, nobody else is doing this story. Nobody believes it, you know. Um, and it's supposed to be a good quality in a journalist to stick up for a story that you think is true and everybody else is saying the opposite, but you believe it, right? Like, that's an important quality in a journalist. You have to have the very, very thick skin to... You know, fight through everybody else's uh, sneering and condemnation, which was much milder back then. Um, now it's the opposite. Now it's, uh, you know, why are you not going along with everybody else? I mean, Glenn Greenwald, what he went through over Russiagate was unbelievable. It was part of what convinced me that there must be something wrong with the story. The, the New Yorker did this incredible hit piece on him called The Bane of Their Resistance, um, where it, it had this sort of scary picture of Glenn. It implied that um, because he had a, a bad childhood, he had hang-ups from being gay, um, that he, he had negative feelings about the rise of minorities within the Democratic Party. These were all the reasons why he wasn't going along with the reporting on Russiagate. Um, they were pathologizing him in this way that was, it was dirty, you know, it was like something you would see, um, you know, from a politician, not, not from, from journalists. And once that kind of stuff starts happening, you, you know something's up, and it only got worse from there. So That was the indicator of a like, very serious problem. Right? That's, that, but that, that's so interesting, right? Because for so many others, it was a message, this is what will happen to you. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, of course. And one of the reasons why the, the messaging about this kind of thing is always strongest um, when it's directed at people like Glenn or me um, is because Glenn and I can handle it, right? We, you know, we've, we've done well. We have enough financial security and professional security. We're going to make it. But people who are just starting out in the business who 
you know, whose future is a little bit less certain, they're going to look at this and say, you know, if I go over there and I start saying these things, that might be my career. You know, I'm not, I might not come out the other side. And so do I need that? So you're, of course, very familiar with Edward Bernays, right? And his, uh, you know, his, his view, and correct me if, if I'm wrong here, please, but his view is basically that we need to kind of benevolently propagandize the populace to, so that we can have a good society, right? You know, I wonder if this view hasn't been kind of, since the time of Bernays, it just hasn't just been kind of increasing somewhat. And so as long as things kind of fit into that, into the correct viewpoint, everything would be fine. But then, you know, Trump comes along. The Trump campaign had this amazing social media game. That's what I, I remember that very distinctly. It's like they managed to take to use the tools which were previously used only only for use in other ways, let's say, or by other people. And in these people's mind, there's no way that this guy could have won fair and square. He must have figured something out here. He must have weaponized our system of perhaps manufacturing perceived consensus. And, and we can never let that happen again, hence the reaction. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, I obviously completely disagree with the idea that there needs to be um, you know, some sort of educated vanguard that nudges the population in, in the correct direction. I mean, I know Thomas Jefferson um, wrote about how, no, we don't want to have aristocracies in America, but it's okay if we have a natural aristocracy that builds up from merit, right? Because they're smarter, because they're harder workers, because they're achievers, and they can be the leaders of our society. I'm not necessarily opposed to that idea, but in journalism, you know, we've, we were always taught our job ends when we publish the stuff. It's up to the reader to figure out what to do with the information. We don't have to give them a push and say, here's what you should do with it. Here's, here's who you should vote for. Um, here's the conclusions you should draw from that. Uh, I, I think that um, inevitably corrupts the mission of, of this job. And what happened with Trump was, I, I think it was a dual failure. Uh, first of all, a lot of the journalists were, I think, blind to why he was succeeding. And that's amazing to me because it seemed to me incredibly obvious. Trump was going into these crowds and he, like a comedian, he was sort of feeling out where all the um, anger was and he would just sort of throw red meat to all these different factions. And people had a right to be angry at that time. America was becoming dysfunctional. We had just lived through a, uh, a crippling financial crisis where the very rich got completely bailed out and everybody else didn't. And there was all of this hostility out there and he captured it in a very smart way, um, maybe through pure feel. But we didn't report that. We reported, oh, he's a racist demagogue. Everything he says is a lie. Don't pay any attention to him. Um, there's no analysis that needs to be done here. Uh, all you need to do is listen to us, and we will tell you um, who the appropriate uh, person is to vote for. And that only made people angrier, right? Uh, because Americans and people don't like to be told what to do. Um, they don't, and they especially don't like it uh, when it's coming from you know, sort of the media class, which I think has lost a lot of uh, trust in, in the last 20 years or so. So, yeah, I think that whole attitude has, has corrupted um, not just the media business, but government, uh, academia. There's this, after Trump, there's this fear that the people is a great beast and we have to do everything we can to subdue it. Uh, so they don't, there's no longer this trust-based relationship between, um, you know, the intellectual class and everybody else. And is a kind of a, a vicious cycle. Like when you can, when you control to some extent these very powerful tools of creating a perceived consensus around an issue. Of course, some people aren't susceptible to it. Some and some are, you know, will just be a little bit like this. But a lot of people are. 
And I suspect that in your in-group, even if when you hold these tools, you actually you're susceptible. So we had this whole thing people would call it Trump derangement syndrome. Later we had COVID derangement syndrome. Now we have Elon derangement syndrome, right? There's all these things, but I, the thing, it took me a while to, to, to grasp this, but I think a lot of people just really believe that. Mm -hmm. Like the, the hatred against Trump is very, it's visceral and real among some people for, you know, not whether or not you like the guy, whether you like his methods, whatever, all that stuff, that's, that's all fine, but there's no reason you would have to hate him like that, right? He's never done anything to you, right, for sure, and unless this was somehow nudged, right? Mm -hmm. But then you believe it yourself, and, you, and it kind of turns into some kind of vicious cycle, perhaps. This is what I've been, this is what I've been thinking. I, saw, I think that's what happened with the truckers movement in Canada, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, they... they, they they said, oh, those are white supremacists, right? And then the media said back to the government, oh, my God, these are really white supremacists. And then the government said, yes, these are really white supremacists. And suddenly, you know, this, you know, very, very ragtag, genuinely grassroots movement became some kind of, you know, existential threat to... to yeah, but, yeah. Um, and, and once you use a term like white supremacist... Um, you know, there's really no coming back from that. That's not a survivable ep epithet uh, in the business. Nobody wants to be dealing with being on the side of white supremacists. Um, and it's almost like the same kind of thinking that Dostoevsky was describing in uh, Crime and Punishment. Um, you know, once you think somebody is bad enough, once you've, you've convinced yourself in your mind that... Um, you know they are so devoid of negative of positive qualities that um, you know you don't have to have normal human sympathy or compassion then everything is permitted right yeah and and that's what happens with all of these news stories what they do is they demonize they create um, these code words that just mean don't take that person seriously they're terrorists, they're fascists, they're white supremacists, they're anti-vax, they're whatever it is. Um, therefore, you don't need to pay attention to them. You don't need to have any kind of conversation with them. You just need to um, appropriately uh, disdain them. And so they're asking people to stop thinking about you know, tens of millions of people. Um, no longer have the conversations, just hate hate, hate. And that's, again, that's something that was predicted by Orwell. We, we, you know, why have the two minutes hate? Because it's necessary. It's a reinforcement mechanism in a society where intellectualism is, is um, you know, is downplayed. Uh, this, is, this is an important ritual for people is to feel that um, in concert with others, uh, you know, that kind of, hatred and disdain and unthinking rage and that's what you see on the internet I, I said earlier that that we've intersected in a whole bunch of areas you know COVID origins Russiagate obviously you know covering it you were one of the earliest really looking at it um, and then if now this whole kind of censorship enterprise so you know I, I just have to I have to mention this because I, it amused me to so so greatly was I saw and I, I don't know is this Walter Kern's thing consensus koala the, the consensus, consensus koala, koala. Okay, yeah so it's his me, idea so, yeah. so so I mean of course it is right of course it's Walter's idea um, consensus koala what's 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 that all about the government actually um, if you go back there was a law called the Smith Munt Act in I think 1948 in this set the stage for um, the creation of this, the CIA uh, after the OSS. Um, and one of the parts of the law was that the government cannot actively propagandize the population, especially the intelligence services. They have to be out of that business. But there were some exceptions, uh, like things like Smokey the Bear, right? Public service messaging. They were allowed to do that. And what we found is that they've been gradually rolling back those restrictions. And instead of Smokey the Bear now, now we have, you know, we were sort of joking that now we have consensus koala, which is you must think the way everybody else thinks. And if 
the FBI and especially the FBI's counterintelligence division, which is very heavily involved with overseas uh, intelligence, the CIA, uh, DARPA, believe it or not, which you would only ever once read about in conspiracy theory uh, literature. It's really here in the Twitter files. We, we ran into them over and over again. Um, all of these agencies that were once involved with um, counter-proliferation, counter-terrorism, uh, trying to counter messaging to disaffected uh, young Muslim men in foreign countries, they are now turning all of those techniques inward um, on our own populations and trying to get them to, you know, believe in a different kind of uh, political consensus. Instead of don't think, don't join Al Qaeda, now they're saying don't, don't vote for Donald Trump or don't join the Canadian trucker tr protests or, um, you know, don't join the Yellow Vest movement. It's actually not a left or right thing. It's just stay in the safe place, stay with consensus. And this is a real thing. This is something that, we, that we're observing. You know, we see the outlines of it in the Twitter files, but I think if we dig deeper, we're going to find out that there's much more to it. So it, it, it's fascinating because this is exactly the, 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 the thought that I had about this. You know, this, when, if indeed there was this more subtle nudging that there was that was being done actively, right? Up, up until we hit 26, 2015, 2016, and so forth. And, and it, it's kind of, let's say everything's rolling along, you know, on schedule or whatever, or, or, or within the boundaries of reason, reason right? Let, let's call it that in quotes. And suddenly, this, these powerful new tools, social media, are suddenly used to upend that system. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you might take all your most potent information warfare weapons and use them right and that's that's very that's a very scary i don't know if that's true i don't know if that's what happened but that's that that's i fear that that may be true we have a lot of data points that suggest that that's what's going on um, oddly enough going back to 2004 my my old magazine rolling stone did a story about the nsa doing information operations overseas uh, about WMDs, but because they were prohibited by those old laws from doing it here at home, the methodology would be, we'll plant a news story in a foreign newspaper, and that would be picked up by the New York Times, the Washington Post, or whatever. And in that manner, a news story that was created by the American intelligence services would come back home. Now, they can do this a little bit more directly. The, the levers they can use, um, you know, don't have to be as subtle. An example that we found in the Twitter files was um, Dr. Jill Stein. Um, she's in the Green Party, uh, and she was put on what Twitter called a, a deny list. Uh, an algorithm decided that she had too many views that were in sync with what they decided was Russian propaganda. So she was put into a group that was called is underscore Russian. And she was deamplified. So now if you're going to look for Jill Stein's posts, it's harder to find it. And this is the, this is the new technology of speech in America. You, you can dial people all the way up to everybody sees it. And you can dial someone else down to it's almost impossible to see them. And that is extremely dangerous. And it's especially dangerous if, uh, you know, it's done in secret and nobody knows exactly how it operates. And so we only have the faintest outlines of it. But I think overall, you're right. The story is information operations that we did all around the world forever have now come home. I'm very aware of incredibly sophisticated information operations coming out of communist China. I understand it's the same that's coming out of Russia. I see people being impacted by these things in, I think, very negative ways. It makes sense to try to counter those things. It makes sense for the government, to me, to counter those types of things. However, <laughs> however, <laughs> it doesn't make sense at all for the government to be, as you pointed out in your 
It's it's Hamilton 64. Hamilton 68. Yeah. 68. Mm-hmm. I keep going back to 1984. Six, Hamilton 68, right? It You can't use that on the local population for things. Like someone has to kind of, someone gets to decide what is pernicious, what is the thing that that that, that is a real threat to the population. And I, and I, I think these things... I think they actually need to exist in some form. But 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 we've seen that it's turned into something it was never meant to and and or or do they even need to exist? I like this is these are the kinds of things that I'm struggling with. But we have to be able to deal with this with this question, right? First of all, I, I think it's a very difficult question, but I agree with you that if the Russians are creating um you know, a bot network and are trying to influence elections. And I was surprised during the Twitter files to learn that this was going on to a degree that was at least a little bit um, more broad than I thought. Same thing with China, same thing with Iran. Um, but the the problem that I saw um, involved, uh, it was best exemplified by a report um, by an agency called the Global Engagement Center, which is um, un- under the State Department. And uh, it, w- it was very similar to the Hamilton 68 story. The Global Engagement Center did old school intelligence work to identify a series of accounts as, in their assessment, being actually Russian accounts, right? But in addition, they created another category they called the information ecosystem of Russia. So these were people who were, quote unquote, innocents, but whose views um, coincided with the, you know, the, the Russian bot or the Russian account. And so let's get rid of them, too. And that's that's where I think it gets dangerous is because, you know, if you think about a channel like RT, what is RT going to cover? RT is naturally going to cover all the things that are really wrong with America, right? Um, they're going to pick out all the things that uh, we actually want to sweep under their rug. Do they have a, a nefarious reason for doing it? Yes, probably. But there are people who are going to watch those programs, and there are journalists who are going to appear on that channel, like Chris Hedges, who are doing it because they are really worried about those issues. You can't just wipe all that stuff out just because the Russians want to highlight it. Uh, and that's where I think there's a, there's disagreement, um, you know, up high on this stuff. It's always going to be a balancing test for these uh, carriers, these companies, because they all know what's going on. The question is how much to, are they going to clean up you know, at some point, um, if they clean up too much, then the conversations become too stilted and uh, it becomes harder for them to make money and they don't stay in business. And then the tool, the tool is useless to everybody because it's either banned outright the way, um, you know, some, some of the American platforms are uh, in Russia now, um, or, you know, it's just infested with intelligence agents, which is what's going on, um, you know, in the West. I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what to do, but I do know that you can't, you can't willy-nilly remove people from platforms just because they happen to have views that coincide with uh, some foreign power. You know, I'm becoming more and more of a free speech absolutist, but, you know, dealing with all these, um, I could think people call it inauthentic. I don't know. That's another kind of weird euphemism. But, but machine driven campaigns to create which it's very a very obvious creation astroturfing of of consensus right illusion of consensus that some some kind of structure like that would probably do a lot to help us but yeah i i don't know how you would regulate that would you force everybody to make public you know what you're amplifying and deamplifying i mean that that's one solution that I've heard bandied about, but um, it's difficult. No matter what you decide to do, it's uh, it's going to be hard because right now, you know, people are getting a completely skewed version of reality when they go online. Things that are actually popular look unpopular. Things that are actually unpopular look popular, uh, and 
that influences people in very strange ways. And, and you know, they're going in and they're, they're messing with perception itself. We all laughed. That, I remember there was a Bush official uh, who got in trouble by, uh, for saying that we're in the reality-making business um, you know, during the Iraq war. And at the time, it seemed ridiculous. So, I mean, no, you're not. Like, people are still deciding for themselves. But with this technology, they can be, you know, and, and that's very dangerous. And we have, we have to think about how we're going to um, go forward with this technology. This is, I think it's the profound issue of our time. I, and I now agree. with just with the deep, the deep fake technology that I've already seen, I mean, it feels like it takes what I already thought was on steroids to a whole new level of steroids. Because, you know, we're very, if we see someone saying something, I suspect that we're very susceptible to that, even if that person never said it because it's been AI generated. Right. Right. Even if you're told later yeah. that it's a fake. 100%. Mm-hmm. The previous method was really based on trust. It was a, I would say, like an organic uh, relationship. I mean, Walter Cronkite was twice voted the most popular or most trustworthy person in America. I think it was 1972, 1985. And, you know, he was carefully nurturing something in his choice of words, the way he presented things, the little pauses, uh, what to emphasize. He was communicating with people. Communication is subtle. It's human. Um, it's something that it's very, very hard to describe. You can be good at it, bad at it, but you know, trust is organic. I think it's or inhuman. With the internet, um, you can achieve the same kind of popularity through completely artificial and different means. And the whole idea of organic trust goes out the window when, as you say, they can fake almost anything. I mean, if you can, if you can fake somebody who looks just like Walter Cronkite saying, "Yeah, screw all of you," <laughs> I mean, well, people aren't going to bounce back from that, right? Uh, so, I don't know what to do. I mean, the the old models aren't going to work anymore, so we we have to come up with new ones. I think I think we have our work cut out for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any final thoughts, Matt? It's, it's such a pleasure to have you. I can tell. No, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank you for having me. And I just want to say, this is the core um, issue around which we're going to litigate how much freedom people are going to be allowed to have in the digital age. Um, are we going to tightly regulate the way people think, or are we going to allow them to be free thinkers? As you know, we did very briefly in the West. It's an aberration in history, right? Um, so this is a you know an inflection point uh, that may turn out later to be like a crucial moment in the intellectual history of people, and and I, I hope it comes out the right way because I think it's very scary. As do I. Well, Matt Taibbi, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for. Thank you all for joining Matt Taibbi and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.